From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. As a building and planning firm that specializes in school development, design, and construction, Minneapolis-based ICS has plenty of work opportunities these days. In recent months, the firm has advised school districts in Minnesota and beyond on how to prepare for the 2020-21 school year in the age of COVID-19. Goals include adapting buildings with proper ventilation, space management, and technology to keep students safe and healthy. Arif Qureshi, ICS Managing Principal, touches on some of these strategies and best practices in the following interview with reporter Brian Johnson. Pleased to be joined by Arif Qureshi of um, ICS building. Uh, it's a, you're out of, where, where are you located? We're at, we're at located actually in Northeast Minneapolis. Our headquarters used to be in Blaine, but we recently moved about weeks ago to downtown Minneapolis. Okay. And so I, ICS uh, specializes in providing innovative facility solutions that help clients plan, build, and operate their buildings well. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and, and sort of expand on uh, what you do and, and what sectors you serve? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we've been around for a little over 12 years and uh, uh, we provide everything from, you know, comprehensive master planning for, for mainly for the public sector. So majority of our clients are K-12, uh, public sector universities. Uh, we do have a number of hospitals we work and clinics in. Um, and uh, really, from the starting point of doing helping them with master planning, with the facilities, strategic planning, all the way to help them um, on the design side, and then take them all the way through the construction process. And then on an ongoing basis, we provide comprehensive commissioning services to ensure that they're running their facilities well, uh, they're operating well, and that they're um, managing the energy consumption really well as they move forward. Okay. And so uh, K-12 is one of the primary sectors you serve, is that right? That's correct. I would say uh, almost 70% of our business uh, right now is uh, based on K-12. Uh, majority of that work, of course, is in Minnesota, but we do work in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Uh, we do also have an office in the mid-Atlantic region in Philadelphia, so we do quite a lot of work. Uh, very similarly uh, with K the K-12 market uh, in the mid-Atlantic region, too. Okay. So this is obviously a, a challenging time for everybody, and especially I think of the, the kids going back to school and sort of the different things that they're struggling with now on how to do that uh, and stay healthy and to, you know, a mix of uh, being there in person versus distance learning. Um, what are your thoughts on that and kind of some of the best practices there that, uh, that you're looking at? Sure. Uh, well, I think that one of the things that's really important, I think that uh, I think Governor Waltz was able to pull together was at least 
for some framework, I think, for school districts to look at some data to make decisions on how they manage their education process in the sense of what should be distance learning and what should be in-class learning. So I think that's helpful. At the same time, though, there's a lot of, um, I think, not just best practices, but really common sense things that a lot of school districts have already adopted. So uh, one of it clearly revolves around ensuring that uh, your facilities are operating well, and especially around ventilation. So I think we've been lucky in Minnesota a little bit, and K-12 has, uh, because probably almost in the early 90s, uh, there was legislation that helped K-12 look at the older facilities and improve the indoor air quality, which meant that we were able to provide a lot more outdoor air into these facilities than before. Because if you remember, in the 70s, a lot of these facilities were uh, being designed to provide as little outdoor air because of concern with the energy consumption costs and the energy embargo that was going on. So at this point, what we do see uh, is that uh, that really helped. So older buildings were able to uh, upgrade the ventilation system, bring in more technology with direct digital control so they can actually modify things a lot easier. So one of the things we're seeing happening a lot now in school districts is they're able to go back into the computer systems, modify the ventilation, and bring in a lot more outdoor air, which works out really well when you have partial occupancy, right? If you don't have 30 kids in the classroom and you only have 15 or so, and provide a lot more outdoor air into those rooms, the potential for infection transmission is a lot lower as you move forward. We've seen that across the board from metro school districts all the way outstate, greater Minnesota school districts, they all adopting that and adjusting their ventilation systems. Second thing we've seen is uh, really around the fact that you have to have much more stringent cleaning practices and sanitization that's going on right now. Um, I think a lot of them have uh, gotten ahead of the game a little bit and purchased a lot of the equipment that needed. I think when COVID-19 first came in, you knew there was a shortage of sanitization equipment. There was shortage of some of the uh, materials that you needed. Uh, they've been able to really work through the co-op system that exists. Uh, I think that was actually put in place, if I remember correctly, by Perfitch. Uh, a long time ago with these uh, cooperative buying groups uh, all over Minnesota. I think we have seven of those in Minnesota. And they've really stepped forward in terms of making sure that those supplies are available for school districts. Uh, the other thing we're seeing a lot of is just simple things like barriers. So setting up correct uh, barriers where you're going to have lots of people walking through so that you're able to protect individuals. I think that's something that's been put in place uh, and will continue to be put in place. And then I think finally, one of the biggest challenges I think school districts face is when you have somebody that has COVID, right? So if somebody's positive for COVID, what are school districts supposed to do? And I think it's, uh, it's kind of exciting to see that I think in the last few weeks, the Department of Health has really stepped up with their protocols around what to do with contact tracing in a school environment. So they've actually developed a program where, again, leveraging the co-ops um, that are in place right now to provide an epidemiologist for each of these co-ops, they will be kind of the center person who is gonna monitor and trace that because we know there's gonna be people who are gonna be positive with COVID. How do we contact trace them? How do we make sure we isolate people so you don't get community spread? So that's now been put in place so that if any time a school district has a potential positive case, they're able to pass it on to the co-op who has the public health people available, who will then do extensive contact tracing, isolate those people, 
move some of the people out of the classrooms and then but continue in some of these other areas. So it's I think it's a uh, pretty focused effort that's going on and I think it makes a lot of sense and it's basic public health protocol. Um, so one of the challenges was having the resources and so now we have the resources in terms of materials. We have the resources in terms of expertise. Um, and I think we have resources uh, or at least standards and framework in terms of when you make decisions on bringing uh, kids uh, into classroom or not and do distance learning. So I think those all are being put in place and clearly facilities are playing a big part in this uh, because we've been able to, you know, they modified the fact that you're not gonna have a lot of collaborative spaces. You're not gonna have, um, you know, lunch typically served in a cafeteria. You're also going to ensure that when you have classes that are moving in the hallways, that there's going to be a delay between different classes. Don't have large number of people moving through uh, those uh, those small and uh, corridors as you move forward. So I think that all those things, incrementally, each one is going to be is going to have a positive impact. At least reduce the risk of transmission. Doesn't mean that transmission isn't going to happen. Um, but I think you're going to be able to provide a much safer environment for people to feel confident that they can come back to school. And again, it'll depend on what the infection rates are as you move forward. Um, the final thing is, I think, the masks, right? I mean, this is uh, in part has been some controversy around this, but I think that what we're seeing and the data is clearly showing that that has a real positive impact just because of the fact that we have so many asymptomatic people out there that don't even know that they have the disease and they're the ones that are transmitting it. So if you can have masks uh, in place, I think that'll help a lot. I've heard a lot of concerns and complaints about the fact that kids will not be wearing masks and that's very, very tough to do. Um, maybe the best way to look at it, uh, just yesterday, I'm in New York today and I was walking through a um, smaller kind of a childcare facility uh, where there's a bunch of kids playing outdoors. So New York City is interesting. They, I mean, almost everybody went outdoors wears a mask. And if you look at their infection rate, it's down to less than 1%. Um, you saw almost every kid, whether they were going on the swings or whether they're going down the slide or whether they're riding their little bikes, they all had masks on. So it's amazing how I think kids are resilient. They're able to adapt. Um, and I think they were uh, with the right training, with the right teachers out there, uh, with the adult support, you're able to do that. So I think if you do all of the thing, you modify your facilities, you retool your facilities, you sanitize the spaces on a more regular basis, you provide the personal protective equipment that's needed, you provide the sanitation that's needed, I think we can control this well in a school environment. Yeah, and these sound like good practices for at any time. I mean, sanitizing the schools and, you know, just we all know that the kids can pick up a lot of stuff at school and so that's a, a good practice to implement uh, anytime but do you think uh, some of these things will be sort of long-term uh, design trends in schools even after this pandemic uh, goes away hopefully sooner rather than later um, yeah i i think that i think one thing we're finding out is this is not a one-time issue i mean when you look at what we're dealing with the covid 19 if you remember just recently, you know, we did have H1N1. Uh, we also had, uh, you know, Ebola that we were able to control really well. So that didn't come into our, um, our, our country. But the fact of the matter is there's going to be more viruses. Uh, there's going to be more infection um, just based on the fact that we also travel a lot and the potential for exposure is there. Uh, I think you're going to see some significant changes in terms of 
how not only schools are designed, how hospitals are designed, how offices are retooled. Um, and we've had to completely retool our office to make sure that people feel safe to come into that environment and to, the, to do their work. Because I think, uh, you know, collaboration is important. It just has to be done a little bit different way than it was in the past. So I think you are going to see some changes. I think those changes are going to, however, come with a price tag. Because I think one of the things we are finding out is when you start putting in, and I'm, I can tell you, I mean, there's school districts out there still, especially in greater Minnesota, with classroom sizes of 680 square feet with 34, 35 kids in them, all right? I mean, so irrespective of COVID, like you said, any other disease that you have that can be transmitted, uh, you start getting into that flu season and people get exposure and they're out of school for five, six, seven days and they're missing that opportunity to learn. So I think you're gonna see a space change in terms of how spaces are actually being used, um, which is challenging because you're gonna to have to have bigger spaces, higher volume spaces, um, and then you're going to have to make sure that you appropriately distance those uh, in those classrooms, which means you need more square footage per person or per student that's out there. So I think that um, that's something that uh, I'm hoping we're going to have more discussions with the state and other agencies to talk about what the current codes are for schools, how you design schools in terms of number of people per classroom, and that may change as we move forward. I think we're also going to see some new technologies come into play that are going to be very helpful. Um, I think that there is going to be technology around um, infection control in those classroom spaces because, you know, a long time ago, I had a, um, you know, epidemiologist told me that schools are one of those places that has the largest amount of human tissue per square feet. So when you look at that, you're just going to get higher probability of different types of diseases that could be spread there. So you're going to see, for example, UBC light. We do know that UBC light has a real positive impact. Uh, and I think you're gonna see design changes and lighting changes in all of these classrooms that allow you to uh, basically, uh, you know, not during classes, but in the evening, be able to shut down your normal lighting, turn on the UBC, and then hopefully, uh, you know, sanitize the space before the kids come back in. You're gonna see the same thing, especially in the ventilation system. So you can kill any viruses, mold, bacteria, those kind of things. So I think some new technology is going to come into play. I think we're also seeing uh, technology around uh, potential monitoring of people, right? So that in the sense that we maybe have to require to make sure that if you are susceptible, if you are at a higher risk, then what do schools need to do to make sure that they're able to accommodate those individuals in a different way? And what we're seeing now already is more localized type of, for example, HEPA filtration. So high efficiency particulate air filtration, in those areas where you have highly susceptible people so that there's again less transmission risk you go as you go forward um, so i think that you're going to see um, also a change in terms of the materials that are being used uh, we do know that you know there's a reason why for example um, you know physical uh, rooms medical facilities don't have a lot of carpet uh, you know they don't have a lot of soft materials uh, i think we're going to see a lot more of that in terms of ensuring that you have you know resilient flooring but uh you know and 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 chairs and desks but they will probably be harder surfaces because you're able to sanitize them a lot easier and clean them a lot easier so i think the furniture selections are going to change as you move forward i think the material selection on the walls material selections on the floors are going to change as you move forward so i think you're going to see significant design changes that will be impacted uh, the biggest one being how do you change the space? 
Um, and then the other piece is, you know, as you know, teaching has gone a lot more into collaborative teaching, project-based teaching, which is absolutely needed. Uh, but at the same time, we need to look at, you know, if that is happening, how do we do that? Do we do that in much larger open areas than smaller spaces that people use right now? And I think that you're going to see a lot more of these uh, buildings designed with much larger open areas that can be set up in terms of almost feeling like you're outdoors with a lot more outdoor air coming in, really high ceilings, a lot more air exchange going on, and kids can actually come in in smaller groups and have those kind of um, collaborative and project-based learning also going on. So I think uh, we are going to see a lot of those changes, and I think they're going to continue just because of the fact that uh, this is not the first time and will not be the last time that we're going to see some form of a you know, maybe let's call it even a mini pandemic that could occur as we move forward. I think uh, uh, building design can play a pretty significant part in reducing any risk to people who are inside those facilities. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm curious too how, how this might go hand in hand with some of the um, current design trends. Like, for instance, in some of the older schools that I attended years ago, you had to walk halfway through the building to get to the principal's office or administrative office and now they're having those spaces closer to the front where you know they can kind of monitor people coming and going and, and does that uh, lend itself well to um, what we're talking about here with uh, some of the COVID best practices? Absolutely I think controlling access into the facilities in a centralized way is very very important. I think a lot of districts have had to kind of have the force to change that even in some of the old buildings because of security concerns. Um, you know, we're dealing right now, I'll use an example of Mora High School. It was, a, it was a high school that was built originally in 1936, had additions in 1960s, 1970s, 1990. So it's a hodgepodge and it's extremely hard to know. And it has, I think, over 18 different entrances that you can come in. So that's a major problem because you're unable to monitor because it's basically security reasons. Uh, and I think what we're going to look at is also health security as you go forward in the sense that you want to make sure who's coming in. You're probably going to be required, as you will be, a lot of these protocols are being put in place is as kids come in, the parents are going to have to make sure that they, to some level, certify that, you know, I don't have, my kids don't have these symptoms. The household doesn't have these symptoms, so it's okay for these to, kids to come in. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more uh, of uh, temperature monitoring that's going to happen as you enter these facilities. Um, and those will probably be monitored and fixed uh, in those spaces. Um, there's some really good technology around that. So you are going to have to make sure that people are coming in one place. You have to track the people who's coming in. You have to track which classrooms they're in, how they're moving. That's how you're going to be able to contain this as you move forward. So you're absolutely right. I think you're going to see that big change happen. I think uh, safe and secure entrances, as we call them, will be a big piece of this. Uh, and that's how you're going to monitor really how traffic is flowing in and out of those buildings. Where do you see, where do you see us going here in Minnesota in terms of bond referendums? I know it doesn't look like there's all that much scheduled here for November. And last, a year ago, it was a, a huge time for bond referendums. Um, what I'm hearing is that people are taking sort of a cautious approach now and maybe waiting until 2021 before they go out and ask uh, voters to approve a big bond referendum. Is that, is, is that the sense you're getting as well? 
Yeah, I think we've had a lot of conversations with, uh, with uh, you know, leadership and school districts, and they have some really significant needs in their facilities. Some of them are really immediate. Some of them are safety-based. Uh, some of them are related to educational focus. Um, and I think that anytime there is uncertainty in the market, I think you're extremely concerned about, you know, going out to the taxpayers and asking them for um, some of the changes uh, in terms of how much money they need to put out there. So I think that you're going to see a pretty significant decline compared to a year ago in terms of bond referendums that are going out there. Um, at the same time, I'm going to use it as an example of what happened in 2008 and 2009 uh, when we ran into that economic crisis. And I'll use the auto industry as an example, right? So the auto industry saw their demand for vehicles go from 9, 10, 11 million down to about 2 million. Uh, but there was going to be, as you know, a pent-up demand. It took multiple years to get there, but I think it's a little bit different here. So because of the fact that uh, there is a significant need uh, to modify these facilities, and I think that everybody knows that once the vaccine is identified and is in use, that people will be coming back to school. I think parents are figuring out that the best way for kids to, to really learn is to come back to these facilities. I think if you look at the most recent referendums that were run just in August, there were two that were run, both of them passed, uh, because I think that, uh, you know, parents are really realizing the uh, valuable service, I think, that school districts provide over and above just education, and why they're so critical to have, and to have in a, in a, in a especially in greater Minnesota, but even in, in, in uh, the, the cities itself, that these institutions provide a lot more just education. So I think there's a lot more positive movement to support school districts as we move forward, support the teachers uh, and support the administration. But there will be a decline. I mean, that is going to happen because when there's uncertainty, people don't want to go out to the taxpayers. Um, what we have seen uh, ourselves is that uh, we were planning to have, I think, approximately four or five referendums run this November. Uh, they're going to be reduced to two referendums potentially that we're going to run. Uh, but we've seen a pretty significant uptick for next year. So we are seeing uh, almost uh, three to four times as many referendums that we're going to run in April and May um, of 2021. Um, again, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, not only COVID, but also around the elections in November. So I think that's uh, making people a little bit concerned about going out uh, in front of the taxpayers. But I think you're going to see a pretty large influx of referendums in the first half of 2021. And if I was to guess, I think based on what we're hearing out there and some of the surveys we've done, um, and you know, just even look at the Mora High School, we ran that referendum, it was almost a $60 million referendum, right in the middle of the pandemic with a lot of uncertainty, and it passed overwhelmingly, uh, two thirds majority, you know, it was 60 some percent voted yes. So I think that um, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, there's uncertainty, but I think the parents know that this is an extremely critical institution. We need to support it. So I think that bodes well, I think, for the long term uh, in terms of the projects that are going to come out of it. At the same time, though, even though we're seeing those type of projects decline, we're seeing a pretty significant uptick in terms of projects exactly for COVID reasons. You know, how do we make sure we modify our facilities? How do we set up the barriers? How do we make sure we have safe entrances? How do we make sure we have technology to monitor? How do we modify our ventilation systems? All those projects are kind of moving forward because they know that that's something that's just the baseline that has to be done 
to ensure that you're providing a, a safe environment for the kids that will be coming back. Hmm. Any specific projects you're working on in that regard that you care to talk about or? Sure. I mean, uh, there, there is, you know, there's quite a few that uh, we've been involved in. I mean, we've been working very closely, for example, with Osseo school districts for many, many years around that. Uh, they've got a number of projects planned out in terms of upgrading the ventilation systems. Uh, the good thing is they've put that on a good cycle to keep those projects moving forward. Uh, and those are continuing uh, to move forward. We're seeing a lot of uh, interest in, in those type of projects. Uh, we've got projects in Marshall. We got projects in Worthington. Uh, we got projects in, uh, you know, uh, kind of all over Greater Minnesota uh, that we're involved in right now. Uh, we're just working on some significant projects in Richfield schools right now. So I think that um, those are some key projects that are going to continue not only through this pandemic, but I think uh, we're going to have projects like that uh, kind of show up even into 2021. Um, and, and to some level, what we're also seeing is very interesting is what's happening in the construction market. So what we're seeing actually is the labor cost is down um, because if you remember there was a shortage and I don't think we have a labor shortage at this point because a lot of commercial projects have been put on hold. A lot of the um, hospital projects have been put on hold. Um, but um, you know what that means is we have labor availability but we are slowly seeing material costs go up. So we are seeing some impact on material costs, but at the same time, overall, in the last seven, six, seven projects we bid out, uh, almost every single one of them came close to six to 8% below budget. So the bidding market is really, really good. So um, we are telling school districts, public sector, and I hope that the bonding pill gets through. Um, I mean, if you wanna make investments uh, and make sure that construction workers are employed, uh, that we, you know, keep the economy moving forward, this is the best time to look at construction. You have, you know, cost of capital is low. Uh, you have construction costs coming down. Um, this is a time really we need to, I think, double down. Uh, and I think it's not only going to help with the need that's out there, but it'll also help with the fact that we can pick up employment. Uh, we can kind of pick up the economy. And I think the construction can play a big role in this if we move forward. And I'm hoping that, you know, even with the bonding bill, that if it gets through, that'll have a real positive impact because you are actually going to get, you know, uh, projects that will cost way less in terms of construction costs, but also in terms of finance costs over time. So this is a time, I think, sometimes in the middle of a pandemic, it's a great opportunity to make investments. And hopefully, hopefully our elected officials realize that and are going to make the right choices. Sure. Yeah, well, well, some great insight there. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Um, uh, I, th I, I think that, uh, I think I covered most of it. I, you know, I, I wanted you to be aware of, I think you probably are aware of the where the cost is going on with the construction site. I think we do see that things will slow down, but I think there will be a pent up demand coming out of this. That's gonna be pretty significant. And I think uh, companies that are well positioned uh, to manage their financials well, um, and continue to provide, you know, comprehensive service for the customers are going to be the ones that are going to win in the long term. Uh, and I do think that one of the areas we're going to see a pretty significant pickup on, not just, um, I think, in the public sector market, is going to be healthcare, uh, because I think the retooling that's going to happen in healthcare is going to be extremely critical as we move forward. Um, you know, now it's challenging for them at this point in terms of where their financials are, uh, but we are, we we're pretty pretty bullish on the fact that 
the demand for healthcare is going to be there and it's going to be significant. Uh, they'll be probably changing in the way how healthcare is managed as we move forward. But facilities will be needed. Facilities will need to be upgraded and new protocols will be need to be put in place. So we do see some pretty positive signs in the market uh, for that, that vertical market to continue to grow. Interesting. Well, no shortage of challenges and opportunities out there. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out. So. Right, exactly. I think nobody knows at this point. <laughs> I think we can all just manage the business and, and plan for the challenges and take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. So. Great. Well, thank you again for joining me, Ari. I've really, right. really yeah. enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.